0: everyone and welcome to Nearly Numinous. I'm Rachel and today Steph and I will be talking to you about the intersections between diet culture and religion. I've talked a little bit before on the show about my interest in this subject, so I'm excited to have a whole episode to discuss it with Steph. Um, I'll give you a bit of an introduction into how I got into this topic through some historical context for religious fasting and starvation Then we'll dive into religion and modern diet culture. Uh, But first, I would like to note that this episode does come with a trigger warning because we will be discussing sensitive topics like body image and disordered eating. And we are not in any way promoting restricting food or exercising in unhealthy ways, but we will be discussing examples of those communities who do. So you may or may not have noticed that There are very particular ways we talk about food where we tend to ascribe value to different types and amounts so for example like we might say chocolate is sinful or having a side of fries instead of salad is being bad or you should want to detoxify and purify your body or focus only on clean eating and like most people i think i grew up hearing these things but didn't really reflect on whether or not ascribing value to foods is helpful or even necessary at all. And I became aware of it in high school when it really took its toll on my mental health, but I continued my research into it during my undergrad. I wrote an essay a few years ago focusing on how modern manifestations of eating disorders relate to historical examples of religious fasting and came across the term Anorexia mirabilis, otherwise known as holy anorexia, and that was really the inspiration for this episode. But before we get into that more, I think an important topic to talk about would be asceticism, since that's a term that is really linked with not only Christianity, but just like religious fasting and uh, restriction and deprivation in general. So, Steph. Could you give us a bit of an explanation of asceticism?
1: So I did some research on asceticism as it specifically pertains to a lot of ancient Greek practices. Um, and in the ancient Greek context, it was referred to as esgesis. Uh So it's a little bit different from what maybe contemporary asceticism is, but I thought maybe we could start at the beginning there. But basically, escesis was a, seen as a form of discipline and practice, and basically just like a habit formation. So, in the ancient Greek realm, uh, I looked at this specifically on the basis of sports and athletics. So, this form of ascesis was a, a version of kind of discipline where you really focused on the task at hand. So, for athletes, it was their practice. It was putting their body through crazy things just to kind of get to that state of success, uh, especially when it came to athletics. And for for many people, I mean, we all know that in the Greek world, um, like the Olympics and, you know, any form of sporting event was usually done as a way to honor the gods. So there is a very distinct connection here between the idea of like training your body and really focusing on your body itself in order to please the gods. So when we kind of see how this moves into asceticism in the contemporary age and how we view it. The, the kind of contemporary approach to asceticism is the neglect of basic bodily needs in order to kind of achieve this more divine experience. So for some, that can be uh, extreme meditation. So when we look at something in like the Buddhist community, that, that kind of extreme meditation and what we view the Buddha as doing, um, like neglecting bodily needs, whether that's uh, sitting in meditation for days. Um, sometimes that means not eating for days. And it's just, just kind of trying to separate yourself from that worldly experience in order for you to fully I- embrace this divine kind of mental state. And this kind of is seen to be uh, an advanced connection with the gods. So we also see this in, in extreme Christian monastery practices. And I believe Rachel will get into that a little bit more later, but it, it's the idea of starving yourself uh, and, and to use maybe less extreme words, uh, fasting so that you can kind of create a more deep connection with God because you're kind of neglecting those needs so that your, your body is only relying on what God can provide of you.
0: Yeah, and I guess I would say that starving is really, like, the, the higher end of um, restricting food. Like, I mean, depending on how you define starving, it can just mean, like, consuming no food at all, which some ascetics did, or only consuming um, certain food like bread or rice, or uh, only having, only restricting one type of food. Um, those are Yeah, it's like a
1: spectrum, for sure. Yeah. Especially when it comes to, like, and it can be anywhere from, you can see, like, really basic forms of asceticism, uh, even just in a normal setting where you just deny certain pleasures for yourself in order to create that connection with God. So, this can even be seen in how, you know, priests are celibate, right? Like, that's kind of seen as neglecting a certain worldly pleasure in order to create that more divine connection. Um, but it can also even just be not eating high sugary foods. You know, we see this with maybe, um, like Mormons will oftentimes not have things like caffeine or other stimulants because they're seen as kind of creating this certain pleasure that denies you a deeper relationship with God.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Branching off that uh, topic of asceticism, um, after learning about it, I did some research in my undergrad on um, asceticism and, like I said, came across holy anorexia, which is a term used to describe the ascetic and restrictive and sometimes destructive behaviors, uh, typically among medieval Christian women that were used in order to bring them closer to God and salvation. So, for instance, fasting might be seen by some of these young religious women as a way to purge their body of sins, avoid giving into bodily and earthly urges, uh, so that they can grow spiritually, like, um, kind of like what Steph said before, um.
1: So, can you maybe explain, uh, what the difference is between anorexia nervosa and anorexia mirabilis?
0: Yeah, so... This is something that um, I want to talk about later on too, but uh, anorexia mirabilis is specifically referring to a sort of retroactive diagnosis of medieval Christian women who fasted specifically for the purpose of achieving salvation, and anorexia nervosa is um, a modern mental illness, diagnosis that is defined as uh, restricting food intake. So there's um, a little bit of an interesting dynamic there with uh, medically diagnosing people who lived hundreds of years ago versus uh, medically diagnosing people now, and there's what I looked at in the essay that I wrote years ago was this connection the specifically in religiosity between the two and that I argued that there is some religious roots or language or influences in modern anorexia nervosa.
1: So do you find um, like I'm really interested in the history of this uh, especially because I think we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about, uh, how this really links to contemporary diet culture and things like that. But I would like to know a little bit more about your research, especially when it comes to, like, what, if you know much about, like, how this started, why this was seen as such a holy endeavor, um, and kind of, like, where we often saw it. So, like, was this in more with, like, nuns specifically, or was it just any Christian woman?
0: Now, I'm going to have to reach back because this was an essay I did in second year. So uh, it was quite a while ago. And also, if I looked back on it, probably not that good. Um,
1: yeah, that happens to me a lot. Yeah. I read old essays and I'm like, "Oof!"
0: I like, know the idea awful. is
1: there. But like the communication of it was just garbage.
0: <laughs> I know it's just awful. But uh, from what I remember, so this is something that happened um, like among nuns. But it was also just something that uh, women in the general population would engage in. Like, it was a lot easier for men to sort of find community and connect to God. I mean, men were kind of seen as connected to God more at adi- uh, more automatically by nature of being masculine, intellectual, less bodily, less worldly. And women were more seen as connected to their bodies and the earth and therefore less in touch with their spiritual side or less able to be connected to god so
1: i find that hilarious because i would say in the contemporary age the assumptions the opposite
0: i know like you know and... the
1: stereotypes that like men are just like more driven by their bodily needs uh to put it radio friendly <laughs> and women are the ones that are more like in touch with their emotion and their spirit and stuff it's such a change
0: I know, and I think you do see that there's, I mean, maybe I shouldn't, don't quote me on this, but I think there are more religious women than men these days.
1: It seems to be. At least I think maybe, maybe it's just the interpretation that we take from that, because I would also say that women tend to, and I, I would like to just clarify, I'm going off a very traditional gender typing here, but a lot of the very traditional men and women and, you know, what we view as men and women identified, uh, men are typically less likely to talk about their religious belief system, whereas, you know, my mom and I can sit down and have a conversation about our religious beliefs, what we view god as being what we view our connection to our religion as being whereas me and my dad never have those conversations uh but my dad still goes to church he still is a religious guy uh we just don't talk about it he's less open about it so it almost maybe comes across as like you know men are maybe not as religious when it's really just they don't talk about it as much i don't know
0: that's very true that's a good point i hadn't thought sorry, of
1: my cat's scratching at my door i'm
0: just gonna let her <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: Recording from home is really fun. Yay!
0: And building off that, I think, like, at least going back many years, like, decades and centuries, um, the public sphere was more of, like, a men's place, and the private sphere was more of, like, women's space, um, and since women were more, like, restricted to the private space, they kind of had to find different ways to sort of develop and strengthen a connection to God rather than, like, you know, less through uh, theological discussions with other people. It was more like a personal matter, at least uh, from my understanding, and restricting food, uh, uh, sort of modifying your body or modifying changes in your life in order to be saved, in order to have a closer relationship with God, was more accessible for women when they were more restricted in their ability to worship God. So, I touched on before about the value we attribute to certain foods, but Uh, what really interested me when looking into the topic was that a lot of the language used in diet culture is either relating to religion or even explicitly religious. So, for instance, the example I used before was that chocolate is sometimes described as sinful, um, or the language around clean eating implies that other types of eating makes you dirty or the unwritten or sometimes actually written rules that exercise or restricting um, are, should almost be used as a punishment for, you know, being bad to your body or with food.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's even that kind of discussion that I notice a lot in contemporary, like health and fitness especially, that you have to kind of work for and earn your food as well which kind of fits into that like punishment almost right like it, it's kind of like a direct correlation that you have to suffer before you can enjoy the pleasures right and you know you always see those posts of like I did a two-hour workout so I earned this a donut it's like mm, I exist as a human being therefore I earned a donut thank you yeah. very much <laughs> today was hard every day is hard you deserve that donut <laughs> but yeah, no I-, I think too it uh kind of goes back to that like ascetic principles right of that you in order to really have the the peak the pinnacle of a full pleasure experience like whether that be from a religious standpoint of being fully embraced by like whatever holy spirit religion enlightenment that you're trying to achieve in order to have that kind of pinnacle of experience you need to to suffer first so you need to neglect yourself of things first and that really is mirrored in this like how we talk about food how we talk about even just like if you're trying to achieve the perfect body you need to suffer in order to do that which means you need to have like flavorless food something like chocolate is sinful because you know it's it's bad for you uh and but because it's a pleasure right like it's not even necessarily like Chocolate at the end of the day is not bad for you, you know.
0: Yeah, in order to reap the benefits later on, whether that's, like, you know, the ideal afterlife or the ideal body, you have to suffer right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I'm curious, though, too, um, before we kind of get too much into the modern diet culture piece, I, I am curious if you know much about, like, are these... Uh, ascetic practices still practiced today? Like, do we have evidence of them, like, occurring in, you know, contemporary, more monastery or monastic traditions?
0: Um, I'm not so sure about contemporary Christian practices regarding asceticism, but I mean... I more know about, like, asceticism involved in uh, Hinduism, and even though Buddhism is about the middle way, there's, like, some arguably ascetic practices involved in Buddhism as well, so I'm not really sure about the Christian side of, uh, I mean, at least I was, um, what I, what I am going to talk about later is, like, the Christian influence on, modern diet culture but I'm not so sure about the current Christian do you know what I'm saying I don't know what I'm saying no, I
1: know exactly what you're saying yeah I think from my perspective anyway I'm not sure what happens outside of like the North American context when we refer to this because I feel like the Christian experience outside of North America is vastly different um, and sorry not necessarily just North America maybe like the Western Christian experience is very different uh, than what might be happening um, in other parts of the world. But I know at least in the North American context, I don't hear much, especially from a Protestant standpoint. I'm sure from a Catholic one as well. There's not a lot of, um, like, anorexia mirabilis that's really, at the very least, it's not promoted uh, and nobody talks about it in that sense. But I do think that there is, I, I distinctly remember when I was going to camp, we would have, as part of, um, like, our staff training, we would have one day where we would fast. And that was seen as, you know, we would spend a lot of time alone in, like, meditation and prayer. Um, sorry, not meditation. You don't call it meditation. In prayer. (laughs) Right, right. And yeah, and it was all about creating this, like, deeper connection, um, between yourself and God and, like, finding that kind of guidance, uh, especially, like, to prepare ourselves for, like, Because we were counselors, um, I wasn't a counselor, but, like, all the staff did it. And, like, you were seen as, like, you were going to be guiding these children, so, like, you needed to have this really deep connection with God, and so, like, this was a very important day during our training. Um, so it wasn't necessarily said as being, like, asceticism or neglecting, you know, like, food, neglecting pleasure, etc. But that was kind of the unspoken, like, that's what you were doing, Right. Um, I mean, I think the difference is, though, like, we did this for not even... I, I don't think we even did it for a full 24 hours. I think it was something like we had breakfast and then we didn't eat again until, like, a late dinner or something. But either way, that was still... This is still something that's really celebrated. And, you know, I think I hear about it in other instances as well, where when people really feel like they need additional guidance from God or whatever God-like figure that you worship uh in order to do that you you fast and you take the time to focus solely on your relationship um and it takes away the time of you know needing to eat needing to prepare food but it also takes away these distractions right because when you start to feel hungry the idea is that instead of nourishing your body through food you're nourishing your body through spiritual means
0: yeah exactly and thinking about it now i can kind of see how um fasting could come into more, like, evangelist, like, Protestant evangelism, like, with purity culture specifically. Um, I think a lot of the purity culture is, like, specifically around um, sex and lust and all that, but, I mean, uh, bodily urges, like, hunger, that's just another... That's just another example of um, succumbing to your body's desires, and i can I can see how um, it might play a role there. But I'm really not sure, and it would be interesting to look more into that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that being definitely a point of conversation, and I think that's also something I'm curious as well, though, if that's something that isn't really focused on outside of the Christian Church. So, for example, Uh, if you were as, like, a non-Christian person, if you were having a conversation with your Christian friend, they might not focus on things like that. Because I think that's seen as, like, if you were to say that, like, your religion is a ladder, right? The first rung is just, like, going to church or, you know, participating in that community. You know, one of the top rungs would be, like, doing things like purity-based practices. So, doing things like fasting, um, celibacy, things like that. And so that's not necessarily something that would just come up in everyday conversation. So I'm wondering if it's maybe just more widespread than we're even realizing it, because as somebody, I don't really spend a lot of time in highly religious circles these days, you know.
0: That's true. It could be sort of like an unspoken or more of a thing that is involved in tight-knit communities that you and I on the outskirts of those tight-knit religious communities wouldn't see.
1: Hmm. Well, and I think even to take it a step further, I'd be curious, and maybe we should give uh, our, our good old friend Sam a call. I wonder if he would have anything to say about, because uh, I'm sure that looking at diagnoses of hysteria, I'm sure some of it probably accompanied uh, extreme fasting. I think we did talk about that a little bit in our episode. I don't know if you remember more specifically.
0: I, I think I do, yeah, and I do remember coming across the word hysteria and hysterical women when I was researching um, holy anorexia and, like, fasting and starvation uh, among medieval Christian women. They kind of, it gets tied together. It's a very gendered thing.
1: So, Rachel, you've kind of mentioned, like, not only, you know, we kind of talked about up until this point the idea of fasting within religious traditions and why they're used but but you did mention that there's a lot of links between the language we use when it comes to fasting or asceticism and purity and how that functions in modern diet culture and i'd really like to know a little bit more about that especially like as it pertains to how those movements happen either associated with religion or even just separate from religion
0: the sites and communities i'm going to talk about are not as easy to find online these days, um, as a lot of them have been reported and removed for glorifying mental illness, eating disorders, and self-harm, um, as they should have been reported. Uh, they, The site's communities and individuals label themselves as pro-ana, meaning pro-anorexia, or pro-mia, meaning pro-bulimia, and They involve a community of people who wish to lose weight and encourage themselves and each other to do that by sharing photos and videos of skinny people, uh, body goals, measurements, exercising, and more called Thinspiration or Fitspiration. And sometimes these hashtags sort of filter into more general diet communities online, like Twitter. But they, a lot of the time, are born from directly in these pro-Anna and pro-Mia communities. So... And... Yeah, and
1: it sounds like there's a bit of a difference between, like, what you might see on some, like, fitness Instagram influencers page that's, like, quote-unquote spo versus, like, what's in these communities. It sounds like it's maybe, like, quite a bit more extreme in these communities versus, like, just, you know, hey, I'm yeah. muscular and skinny, I'm inspiring you to work out versus, like... I'm inspiring you to purge, right?
0: Yeah, particularly with inspiration, it's not about being healthy. Um, It's not about uh, even sometimes being, like, attractive through being skinny. It's specifically about being skinny, about being pure, and about being, uh, and about, like, sticking to these rules, rather than, like, bettering yourself as a person, you're sort of diminishing yourself as a person. So, in this way, the disordered eating not only becomes an integral part of the user's identity and the way they see themselves in the world, but it's also a big part of the people they surround themselves with. So... On these sites and accounts, you can see a lot of allusion to religion via the language and terminology used. So for instance, one of the things that can be found online are the Thin Commandments, which is an obvious allusion to the Ten Commandments, but it involves rules that require the follower to become pure, attractive, and strong specifically through starving yourself. And sometimes the rules are even written in a similar way as the Ten Commandments, such as by beginning with thou shalt or thou shalt not. For example, number two on the list that I brought below is being thin is more important than being healthy. Number four, thou shalt not eat without feeling guilty. Like, they're really, it's not about health, it's about sort of punishing yourself uh, diminishing yourself, um, in the pursuit of this ideal goal of skinniness and purity and perfection. Mm -hmm.
1: I think it's interesting, too, with, like, the language around perfection, purity, and guilt. All three of those words I, I really see as being driven by this kind of idealized vision, which you see a lot in, like, religion as well, because, you know, in order to be, a the perfect person you you have to be pure right you have to like there's this guilt that comes along with it if that makes sense you know and i think too right like it's it's like it's called the what is it the the christian guilt or something is a term that's often used especially by people who've left the christian church um and again, so I'm speaking specifically from Christianity because that's just what I know most, but I'm I'm sure this happens in other religious traditions too, especially like the idea of purity and making yourself this quote-unquote perfect image, right? Um, and I I know this can also go back to the idea of like the Imago day, right? And like making yourself to be as godly as possible. And in order to do that, you have to make yourself as pure and as perfect as possible as well. Uh, regardless, like obviously... I'd like to say here that there's very different, this is a very different view of what perfect means. Um, a lot of people, you know, there's healthier views of what you think perfection is too, right? Like, it's not necessarily bad to strive for perfection. It's just when you have these unhealthy characteristics associated to it can be quite dangerous. So I'd like to just, like, say that as well. So,
0: <laughs> Do you mind uh, explaining what Imago day means? Mm-hmm.
1: So Imago Dei is in the image of God, I guess. So it's, like, to, to quote it directly, so it's this idealized image, um, basically that humans were created in the image of God, and in order to be as godlike as possible, you need to match that image of God, if that makes sense. So, like, to put it into the context of, you know, this diet industry, um, extreme dieting industry, in order to make yourself this perfect human form you have to be as close to God as possible. And uh, it's quite interesting because, I mean, from my personal opinion, um, you know, and I think a lot of people's opinion, is it that we're created in the image of God or we've created God in the image of us? And so how we kind of create this view of perfection really plays into that theme. And so even going back to, like, what I was talking about in, like, Greece and um, that kind of asceticism, When you put it in the realm of, you know, athletes, for example, um, you, you equate these statues of athletic heroes. You say, oh, they, those looked like the Greek gods. Like, that's what we think the gods look like. Um, I can even think about, like, you know, when you look at images of, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his OG bodybuilding days, a lot of people, like, the language used around that is just comparing him to this, like, godlike figure. Because it's seen as, like, he has the perfect body. So we've kind of melded this, like, imago day vision into what we think the human body should look like. And that's how, like, we've kind of taken that into a whole new realm when it comes to health and fitness. And, you know, I mentioned bodybuilding as well. Like, that is another example of just, like, how we view the human body and how we compare it to this idea of perfection and granted bodybuilding is a good example of like you can be just aiming for this great physique not a big deal but as soon as you kind of like take it almost deeper than that when it becomes a lifestyle when it becomes an identity uh, it almost becomes your religion and you strive for this purity and you strive for this perfection to the point where it's it's a, it is a form of asceticism or purging, and and that can be extremely dangerous as well.
0: Yeah, I think Imago Dei also might have played a role in the asceticism of women, like, hundreds of years ago, especially, like, if we're created uh, supposedly in the image of God and God is a man, then, like, what are women? Are women created in the image of God? Are women lesser than men because they are not specifically created in the image of God and like is the only way to become closer to God uh, through sort of diminishing or destroying anything bodily or womanly um, about yourself.
1: Well, it's interesting you bring that up too because I mean, uh, aside from just like the, the religious implications of it, there, there is really a movement happening right now where we're starting to see just how much women's bodies have been neglected when it comes to, especially like research and expectations of women in the health and fitness industry. Uh, there's, I think Dr. Stacy Sims, I think her name is, she's doing a lot of work about like her motto is women aren't just tiny men. Uh, which I think is pretty funny. But it's true, you know. Um, it's kind of... So up until this point, a lot of women have strived to have the same results that men typically have when it comes to health and fitness. They're trying to be like men, whether that's a strictly, like, patriarchal thing or if it's directly tied to this religious language as well and this version of, like, the Imago Dei. Um And so what we're seeing as well is... Things like, you know, not to get too uh, TMI about this, but like women's menstrual cycles, for example, you know, that is an extremely important part of the female system. Um, Whether or not you're choosing to reproduce or not, that is still a function that needs to be happening, right? And if it's not happening, that's actually quite dangerous. But what we see is that oftentimes when women... Use approaches like just to draw from a specific diet industry right now, like keto, for example, like women need healthy fats in their diet for a healthy reproductive menstrual cycle. And when they're not getting enough um, like carbs and fats and etc., cetera, it can affect that. Whereas when you see men, which is what like the keto diet was originally researched on, men do it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't affect them to a great amount. But with women, it does. But then, I mean, even on top of that, up until recently, it was almost seen as, like, a successful thing. Like, when women no longer had their menstrual cycle, it was like, oh, you've lost enough body fat that you don't have that anymore, so you're, you've are you
0: reached the pinnacle. Yeah, like, you've finally overcome that.
1: Yeah, like, you've overcome what it means to be a woman. Uh, you've now matched yourself to a man. Yeah. You're closer to being godlike.
0: <laughs> yeah, I- I've seen that from more, like, the psychology health field a bit, too. Like, historically... The way we understand the human body and the human mind is from uh, the standard of man. So when we then study, like, women and find them different from men, then it's sort of seen as, like, women are lacking compared to the standard of what it is to be a human, a.k.a. man. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was a little sidebar, but... (laughs) So, sort of go back to Imago Dei um, Mm, and being a god, uh, being in the image of god. uh, In these pro-Anna and pro-Mia communities, you might also see Anna and Mia being personified or, like, worshipped as goddesses. Um, And you can specifically, like, see this in the imagery or descriptions of them being like perfectly thin and much holier for it sort of like this ideal to strive for or like someone you can pray to for strength to you know be as perfect as them
1: i think too um there there was a really interesting quote that i came across when i was doing my research on asceticism um from a scholar that studies the like the olympics um but more from like an ancient greek perspective and uses it as, like, philosophies for understanding performance enhancement technologies and things like that. Um, But she kind of pointed out that the way we worship these kind of gods and heroes is how we've kind of turned into worshiping these athletes. And even in ancient Greece, she kind of said uh, ancient athletes were not heroes, rather they reenacted heroic struggles thereby experiencing heroic virtues and inspiring both artists and spectators to bond with the higher ideals implied by their shared belief in divine ancestry. So especially when you kind of put this like language about the hero and like the heroic struggle especially, um, that brings into this kind of idea of the, in order to be that hero or that god or that goddess, you have to be part of that struggle. So like it's interesting too that the way you're saying these like promium proana groups are personified into the goddess it's it's that struggle that's being personified if that makes sense
0: I yeah think. absolutely and that uh, that word virtue is such an interesting word like to be virtuous in these uh, circumstances like the only way to be virtuous is specifically to struggle
1: well so, On the topic of virtue, um, when it comes to talking about aesthetics specifically, and again, going back to a bit more of my research, um, a lot of the, the things that had to do with asceticism were surrounding this idea of this struggle, but it was because there was a celebration of struggle as being virtuous. So in order to have that kind of virtue and be seen as a virtuous person, you did have to do like be part of the struggle. Um, I found a lot of work, especially Aristotle talked a lot about this, um, especially when it came to the struggle of habit building and habit formation was what made you, what gave you moral virtue. So it wasn't only just being that ideal person. So it wasn't just being skinny. It wasn't just being fit. Because, I mean, even when you bring into context, like a lot of people who struggle with anorexia, it's not because they're fat at all right like it's not because they're legitimately overweight it's because it's always striving to be skinnier right it's always striving to like quote-unquote be better um not that I'm saying it's better to be skinnier by any means uh but it's it's not about the I guess it's not about the where you're trying to be it's about struggling to get there and so it's really that's where the virtue comes from and that's where becoming this virtual person comes from is in like this habit building and this struggle you know
0: yeah completely and i think like in the these days i think ascribing to diet culture is seen like as a virtue or like at least connected to virtues like strength and willpower and uh, accountability and all these can be achieved via mental and physical struggle by way of, like, uh, restricting food or over exercising or all that. And you could say these are healthy examples of virtues, like, you'd think, like, strength is a good virtue, willpower is a good virtue, but then on the opposite side of that is that if you aren't dieting, um, if you aren't exercising, then you might be seen as weak, or you don't have any willpower, or, like, you're not virtuous, you're not good, and you can, like, you should punish yourself for it, or you should, you know, do something to change that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, too, using the word willpower, because that's definitely something that you hear a lot. I even remember um, back when, you know, watching cable television was a real thing, I, I remember all the commercials, especially when, you know, with things like 100 calorie snacks, when it was like, you don't need the willpower anymore. Like, you don't need that. You just need these small snacks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like that idea of willpower is like so big. And I think especially if you're trying to be the most perfect physical form you can be, a lot of it comes down to willpower. which seems like such a like harmless word but when you really think about it like that is yeah yeah
0: and it's mistaken too like if you there's a lot of new research day these days coming out that's saying like willpower is like only a small part if a part at all of like you know the way your body functions the way it craves food the way it uh the way you try to lose weight it's not like it's not about being a strong or a weak person. Like, this is biology. And, I mean, dieting is supposed to be, or it's seen as supposed to be, like, overcoming your biology.
1: Yeah, especially when it comes to things like you were mentioning cravings. Um, you know, the, the research that's been done recently, but I think we've kind of always known this, just nobody talked about it, was that When your body's craving something, it's because your body needs that, you know? It's not that, you know, and it can sometimes be masked as things, right? You know, like, there's things about, like, when your body's craving salty food, it can be because you're deficient in certain minerals and things like that, and you get them from those salty foods. So it's not necessarily about, if if you're trying to use your willpower to overcome those cravings, sometimes it's actually dangerous and oftentimes it's dangerous because your body needs something it wants like it needs to get something now there's something to be said too about different food addictions and that's a whole other conversation that we're not even bringing up right now but from like the average person's standpoint you know if you are for the most part like baseline healthy and your body's craving something you shouldn't be using your willpower to neglect yourself of that you should really be figuring out what your body needs and using that you know there is no virtue in starvation uh just point blank despite everything we're talking about today
0: right that's where like that's where i think the religiosity comes in like the willpower if you don't have it you can pray to god for extra strength or like if you do have the strength it's like you know it's god-given or like maybe it's not like it's more to do with your brain which sometimes historically has been more connected to god than to do with your body which is you know historically been connected to like you know the earth being away from god being more worldly rather than otherworldly
1: for sure and that goes back to kind of what i was saying earlier that you know for people that fast it's it's about rather than nourishing your body you're nourishing your soul right so there's that like disconnect there as well where Mm -hmm. again if you're eating, you're nourishing your body whatever, but you really need to be nourishing your soul, so you know, ignore that and, you know, pray instead, which yeah, that's that can be really dangerous. <laughs> it's Absolutely, like, really yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Actually, there was one other topic that I thought was quite interesting and I don't know if it's going to be give us much of a conversation, but Something I've really noticed, so I am somebody that definitely has kind of been pulled in by, like, the health and fitness community, um, both in, like, healthy and unhealthy ways, for sure. I've never been one to starve myself. Um, Food is just too good. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I have no willpower, so to speak. (laughs) But one thing that I really have noticed is that when you look to health and fitness influencers, and I don't know why this is, and I don't know if this is maybe just something that I've accidentally come across um but i've noticed that a lot of them are christian women
0: really a lot
1: of them so people that i follow on instagram especially ones that like do um like fitness blogs and f- cooking blogs and things like that a lot of them have christian roots and i don't know if that's just because obviously most people i follow are from north america mm-hmm. and Typically in North America people tend to be more Christian, especially like kinda in their thirties right now. Mm-hmm. Or if that's like if it's just a fluke. But I do find it quite interesting that it seems to be these to to like put a stereotype on it, what often happens is it seems to be white women in their thirties who have young kids that really seem to be pulled into this diet culture. And I don't know if it, I, I feel like there's definitely a link there between this kind of wanting a certain spiritual connection, wanting to be a certain way for your family, for your husband, for your religious community, that really ties into like why a lot of these women end up being these health and fitness people. And even more so, like, there's definitely something to be said about, like, why they typically tend to be the health and fitness people that end up being influencers, right? Mm -hmm. And being, like, taking the time to really try to, like, teach and almost, like, evangelize their health and fitness to other people, right?
0: Yeah. It really is sort of, like, evangelizing. Like, if you look at these health and fitness influencers, it's very... I don't know how to describe it. It's very all-consuming, um very pervasive, like, it influences, or, like, it seems to online, every bit of their life, and all they kind of do is preach and say, like, you need to join this movement, or, like, this is why joining this movement would benefit you, um, would, like, I think even these days people will say, like, it'll make you healthier spiritually, too, If you, Mm -hmm. you know, join in on this movement, um, it's not just about being healthy, like, physically and mentally, it's about being healthy spiritually, too. Like, if you want to be healthy in all aspects of life, including, like, spiritually fulfilled, like, this is one of the things you need to do, like, this and this and this.
1: Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too, because I've so often heard this kind of movement being called the cult of wellness or the wellness cult, right? And so, you know, you put that name on it too, right? Cult, yeah. you know, like it's it's pulling people in. It's this evangelizing, you know, you've got your charismatic leaders. And mm-hmm. uh, again, not to go, you know, as a religious studies scholar, we could go into the nitty gritty about calling it a cult, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but, you know, like that kind of word still brings out certain thoughts about what this group is, right? Yeah. You know, and it, it's true, they, they pull you in, they sell you stuff, they make a buck off you with these charismatic leaders who convince you that the only way you're going to be a worthy person is by being part of their group, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of like, that's where I think too, you know, there's different levels of, you know, you've got the pro-Anna and Mia groups that we were talking about that, that are, are super, super dangerous because it actually is detrimental to your, your physical health. But then you get even these ones kind of where they're not necessarily detrimental to your physical health because, you know, you're working out, you're eating healthy, not a big deal. That's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're eating the food you still need to be eating. You're taking care of yourself and all of that. But then there's still this pressure um, and this kind of community that you're told that you need to be a part of. And I even think of um, just for like my own personal example, i a couple years ago i got really involved with like the tone it up community right and for me that was awesome because i was in a really rough place mentally like i was not doing too well i would gained a ton of weight i wasn't healthy um mentally physically etc and so i found something it was easy for me to do it was like 15 20 minute workouts every morning and i just did them and it was great but then on top of it it pulled you in with these like girl power stuff right and like Mm -hmm. having a community of people but then on top of that there's also this sort of pressure to like buy all the products like i don't know if you're familiar with like this tone it up community but they have like their own protein powders they have their own workout equipment they have an app they have like cooking like nutrition plan books they have live events that you can go to and at the end of the day, if you're going to be, like, totally involved in this community the way you should be, quote-unquote, then you're going to end up spending, like, thousands of dollars a year. Like, I know people, not personally, but, like, I, I know of people that would spend, like, thousands of dollars on, like, round-trip planes tickets just to go to some event that they were hosting. And it's it's insane, but it, it's also, like, you need to do that to be part of this community. And if you're just doing the workouts every day, like you're not being held accountable, you know, and, like, that's a whole other thing is, like, that accountability language, too, you know, so, like, again, if you're not showing up to the church of Tone It Up every single day, then you're bad at your religion. Yeah. And you're not a truly invested person, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and these, like, the health and fitness experts and, like, companies and communities, they really, like, they really tend to draw in vulnerable vulnerable people but the thing is like this diet mentality is so pervasive in our culture that it's such a slippery slope for pretty much anybody to be drawn in these days like Mm -hmm. it's like you've got the charismatic leaders that you can just see on instagram like you scroll past it you see it uh and maybe you don't, like, read the entire thing, but it's still in your head, and then you'll see more of them on your timeline, like, it's just so completely ingrained in our culture that it becomes ingrained in our mind, and sort of leaves us vulnerable to, you know, even if we are being quote-unquote healthy about our body and food choices, we might still have an unhealthy mindset.
1: Definitely. Yeah, and I think, too, it really sucks you in because it tells you that you have a healthier mindset because of it.
0: Yeah, completely. And
1: now, in all fairness, like, going back to my own personal experience, I did, I saw a huge shift in my own mental health state, my physical health state, uh, how I was just going about my day-to-day life improved drastically while I was part of this kind of community, But that being said, it got to a point where it just wasn't sustainable for me, and I either needed to move on and do something else, or really continue to invest more than it was really giving back to me. And, I mean, I think luckily I wasn't as invested in this community as some people get, so for me, when I kind of stopped being interested in it, I just moved on. Um, Not a big deal, you know? And now, like, I, I have a healthier relationship with health and fitness, and I continue to do it, but I'm not really part of this, like, group. But I think there are people that you see that are just part of this group for, like, years, and they, they can't get out of it. You know, you even see it with things like Weight Watchers, right? Um, or, or even just another, exi- like, going back to that keto thing again, you know, what ends up happening is if you stop doing it, then you see all this weight gain, right? And, like, the only reason you're healthy and the only reason you're in this position is because you're doing this one thing. You're part of this one movement, and it works for you. But then again, as soon as you stop being keto, people put on a ton of weight because it's not a sustainable diet, right? And so you see that happening a lot too where, yeah, you just... It might be healthy for a certain amount of time, but it's just knowing when you're pulled into the cult and you can't get out versus, you know, when you actually are making healthy decisions about your own life and what you need for your own personal growth and development.
0: Yeah. I guess at the end of the day... Kind of what we're trying to say with this episode is...
1: I think it's just be wary of what you attribute virtue to.
0: And, you know, diet culture sucks.
1: Yeah, diet culture sucks.
0: Just flat out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I think, too, especially, you know, I think how we view virtue and morals and how we create our worldview is inherently religious, um, whether or not you want to call it religion or not. And I think that's kind of what we get at at this whole podcast whenever we talk about anything, right? Like, there's religion is so intertwined with everything that we do and how then we view our morals and our virtue is directly affected by how we associate our life with, like, every individual choice we make and, like, how the marketing of these things prey on your desire for virtue and morals, uh, when that needs to come from within you, I think, um, not to get all, like, I don't know, <laughs> self-development woo-woo crap, but, like, <laughs> you no, know, I, I think, it. yeah, don't look to these communities to tell you how to live a virtuous life, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, Absolutely.